Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When the internet was invented, it presented the world with such hope. Finally, people all over the world could connect and collaborate. Everyone would have free access to information and to worlds that they wouldn't otherwise get to experience. But now, three decades later, even the people who invented it would admit that life online hasn't all gone to plan. The inventor of the World Wide Web, Tim Berners-Lee, says he is devastated at how his invention turned out. If you'd asked me 30 years ago where we'd be, I kind of would have hoped that we'd be using web tools effectively to promote democracy. What we see now with Cambridge Analytica, the spread of misinformation, lack of accountability, the blocking censorship by governments, this is not what we are seeing. Most of us increasingly live our lives online, despite knowing how it can distort democracy, spread disinformation, how it can be a haven for online bullying, hate speech, and even radicalization. There are so many problems with it that Parliament has spent years debating a new set of laws to police the internet. It's three years since the government promised an online safety bill, but it's not yet before the House. Meanwhile, the damage caused by harmful content online is worse than ever. If I'd have known what was going on in social media or what, what was being pushed around, I would have probably taken a phone away from her. The content that we saw on there was pretty horrifying. Children are having, you know, a very tough time out there and their lives are being somewhat distorted by some of the experiences that, that are being pushed on them as well as the ones that they see. But life online wasn't always like this. To understand how it's gone so wrong, we have to go back to a time when it worked. The political journalist Marie Leconte was born in 1991, the same year as the World Wide Web. She grew up online in the early noughties when the internet was still a joyful place. 
some of my happiest moments and most glorious moments and silliest moments came because of the internet. And I know I'm not the only one. And I think someone needs to write something that's nearly a kind of eulogy to the good internet. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the internet, a paradise lost. Uh, my name is Marie Leconte. I'm 30. I'm a political journalist based in London, but I actually grew up in France and I'm half Moroccan as well. I've been online since, I would say, sort of roughly 1994, 1995, despite having been born in 91. And yeah, and I've just written a new book called Escape, which is about the experiences of people who grew up online in the sort of late 90s, early and mid 2000s. Part of the reason why I wanted to write the book was that I felt that a lot of writing about the internet, especially by people who are roughly my my age or a bit older, is actually very pessimistic, is very negative, is very mm. cynical. And I thought, no, but hang on, I would not have 10% of the life I have right now if it weren't for the internet. Marie, for you, life online starts very, very early. Tell us how that happened. How did it all begin? Um, well, I mean, the, the, the start is very much just the fact that my dad was a massive nerd uh, when I was born. So, you know, even in the kind of late 80s, early 90s, we had a computer at home, which was really rare at the time. So I was very much kind of on the computer from a very young age. And yeah, so I think I've never really known life without the internet. And take us back to those early days. You know, for people who don't remember, who weren't online at the time, what was that early version of the internet like? It, so it felt very small, I would say. There are two things. I think the first one is that it felt very small. And the second one was that it felt completely separate from real life. So what I mean by small was that, you know, you, you didn't have obviously social media. And a lot of what you did was quite matter of facts of, you know, I want to read about this thing. I will Google this term and then I will read what's on there. Or, you know, you'd find one blog and you'd like that blog. So you would read that blog every day or however often the person published your articles. And that's kind of what you did. There was not, you didn't quite lose yourself, I think, in the internet in the kind of very early 2000s as much as we do now. And then so I started my first blog when I was 12. What made you do that? And what was it about? Oh, it was just about my life because that, that was the trend in my school. So, you know, we all got blogs at the same time. We all got MSN Messenger. So basically what we did is that, you know, we'd go to school, <laughs> then we'd come home and blog about what had happened at school. And then we'd go on MSN Messenger to discuss what happened at school and the blog posts we'd written with each other, which was really fun. And then, so I think the slight turning point for me was when I was 13, actually, and I discovered a music website quite randomly, a music blog, sorry, rather, by some French teenager who lived in Paris, I remember, who really liked indie British music, which was very popular at the time, so kind of 2005, 2006. And I got really into it. And then I was like, well, now I'm going to start my own music blog. Um, <laughs> wow. Yes, because I think the faith you can have in yourself as a young teenager <laughs> clearly is boundless. But yes, yeah, so at 13, I started my first music blog. And then so towards the end of so 2005, I thought, OK, I would like to go to Paris to go to gigs. And I just took the train so in December 2005 to go see the Paddingtons, which is absolutely appalling band. I've tried listening to them quite recently, <laughs> just very, very bad.
yeah, and I went so with a friend I'd met through my music blog, a woman called Chiara, uh, who had a music blog as well. And we'd met through our blogs and talked on MSN. She was absolutely horrified when I arrived because she was actually at university. So she was 19 and she found this 13 year old girl <laughs> getting off the train thinking, oh God, what have I done? That was the thing with the early internet. You never really knew who the person was who was writing. I know, exactly. And it's also, and it's one of those odd things where obviously thinking back, I want to feel concerned, but actually, at least in my case, it was entirely fine. But I did have quite a few friends when I was 13, 14, who were 21, 22, 23. And we talked about music and we talked about our interests and, you know, not, nothing bad ever happened. But again, looking back, I'm like, why? Why would a 23-year-old man want to be friends with a 13-year-old? It, it oh. rings alarm bells now mm. in my adult woman's head. But at the time, you know, again, I'm, I'm happy to say, at least in my case, I got lucky and nothing happened. But yes, I went to this gig and then I thought, OK, well, that was really fun. Took the first train back at sort of 6am, didn't sleep. Did it a few more times in early 2006. You know, and then my mum eventually found the blog because of course she did. And I got grounded for a very, very, very long time, which again, entirely deserved. I can see that now. Didn't see that at the time. But, but again, but I, so I find that really, really interesting because at the time it felt completely normal to me to have this blog that was completely separate from my life where I could, you know, talk about whatever I wanted. And it, it didn't even occur to me that anyone in real life would go looking for it, would find it, etc. So, so yes, yeah, so so I it think... it was a place to escape to, really. It was, it was. So I didn't have the happiest time at school when I was growing up. I was just always a bit weird, didn't really have any friends. I was bullied quite heavily. And which is why, so the internet did really feel like, again, a kind of my own personal escape route in my own personal world. Where I was like, oh, suddenly, actually, I can have friends. I don't need to get bullied all the time. This is quite nice. But yeah, so that, that's what it kind of felt like, I suppose, in, in those years. So I launched a music website called This Is Mortifying, MDMazing. Uh, I had never done MDMA, to be clear, at that point in my life, but I thought that was quite fun because obviously I was 15, I thought drugs sounded cool. Um, but yes, yeah, so I launched a website and actually, you know, it worked really well because we, I ended up having a team of people, so across from Switzerland and Belgium, um, and I'd send people out to interview bands, I'd interview bands myself. We had reviews of gigs, of albums, and I even like liaised with music labels. So I'd get every new release to review them, etc. So I genuinely became entirely by accident, like teenage media mogul. How did you manage that? Is oh, that I very had very age? bad grades at school. You're, you're building up an empire here. <laughs> In addition to your sort of your music blog, I mean, tell us a bit about some of the other blogs that you were reading at the time. What I quite liked about the internet in those days, and again, I think Tumblr is kind of a part of it. So I've been on Tumblr for longer than I've been on Facebook or Twitter or anything. So I think mm. I joined it. I can't remember exactly when, but 2007. And I'm still on it now. And just describe for us what it was like back then. So the way Tumblr works is that it's halfway, I guess, between blogs and Twitter, I would say. And yeah, what, what it got known for was that there was quite a lot of sexual content on there. So be that sex blogging, GIFs and videos of sex, either porn or porn adjacent. But it wasn't, I think what people are missing is that it, it, it wasn't just that. And what I quite liked about Tumblr is that sex was kind of just a part of life on Tumblr. So, you know, you could read a really funny thing, like a really funny article, series of memes, etc. So I really like fashion, for example. So I follow lots of fashion Tumblrs who so look at a lot of like really beautiful, sort of like interesting artistic work. Mm. And then there'd be a bit of porn. And, and, and then you'd scroll again and then there'd be something else. So it felt like a part of life. It wasn't hidden away in some dark corner of the internet. It was just, it was there as part no, of the daily conversation. Exactly. And I suppose, you know, and that's probably another conversation for another time, but... 
the ideal society for me would be one where sex is just a part of life and is not, again, either hidden away or not something we're completely obsessed with to the point of unhealthiness, etc. And, and weirdly, the earliest internet kind of felt like that. It was just one of many things people talked about. And for you, as somebody in your teens who was coming across a lot of this, I mean, how, how, did, it, how did it help shape you? So I think, and, and this is a slightly weird thing to say, but I think it actually gave me quite a healthy relationship with sex and my own body and with whatever it was I wanted to do, etc. And, and I kind of talk about it in the book. So I used to read this blog called Provocracy, which is run by a transgender man. He'd not come out at the time. I feel like I learned a lot that is applicable to either normal sex or even just quite a lot of areas of life of saying, actually, you should have clear boundaries of your partner. You should only sleep with people you really trust. But also it's fine to basically be doing whatever you want to be doing as long as it's healthy and safe and consensual, etc. Which I'm not convinced actually was the message that was being sent to young women by the mainstream press, by the mainstream media, by mainstream television at the time. So yeah, so again, weirdly reading about this slightly weird guy who was doing lots of really weird things in the bedroom was a lot healthier and I felt that made me a happier adult. (laughs) So actually it was the perfect counterbalance. It was and also it just felt like reading, reading about normal people. Was it much more honest and personal back then? It was, but also it, it did feel... So I think anonymous is kind of... is both the right and the wrong word. I think it both felt more anonymous, but also more fragmented in that you could, you know, be that again, MSN, blogs, Tumblr, etc., wherever you ended up being MySpace, also we've not really quite talked about it. You could just use entirely different names and you could just create a profile on something, an account on something, and then have your fun then, even, you know, pretend to be someone who's actually really daring or really funny or really shy, whatever you wanted. And then if it didn't work, you could retreat quite quickly. And then you're like, let's pretend none of this ever happened. And no one will ever be able to track me down anyway. So you didn't have to be as I think you are now, kind of one person across the internet, you could just be lots of different people. But as a result, I think... Different personas and different interests. Exactly. And I think that allowed people to feel a lot more safe and secure in terms of what they were sharing. So as a result, able to share a lot more of themselves. And for you, I mean, that that meant sort of a brief foray into being a music blogger and then also a fashion blogger. Tell us about that. Oh, God. So I, I was about to lie here and say I'm ashamed of my London Fashion Week con, but actually I'm not. I'm quite proud of myself still <laughs> <laughs> many years on. I moved to London when I was 17 to go to university. So I thought, OK, I have an idea which is very stupid and is never going to work. So I went on MD Amazing and I added a tab to the website because obviously there were tabs saying album reviews, gig reviews, etc. And I added one tab that said fashion. And when you when you clicked on the tab, this is so shameless, it just said, oh, we're currently rebuilding that section, checking in soon. <laughs> <laughs> And Um, suddenly you're a fashion blogger. And yeah, yeah, I mean, very much a fake. And yeah, so then I applied uh, for a press pass for Fashion Week, um, saying, hi, I'm a visiting music and fashion blogger from France. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, and and to be fair, because it was still quite a successful website. So it it was a bit, and there's still a lot of a lie, but you know, the the website part was real. Um, And yet, to my genuine surprise, within about 24 hours, they came back to me and were like, yeah, we'd be delighted to have you. God, what have I done? So then I sensed I was, what, I was 19. How much did you know about fashion? Not that much. I mean, I still still don't really. But yeah, and then the way it works, right, is that you have to apply for a press pass and then you have to apply separately for every single catwalk show. And yeah, and I just got the spreadsheet out one morning in bed and I just sent requests to every every single designer. I was like, I I don't think I can afford to be picky given that I'm not a real journalist. So I did that and then... 
this is really fun. I don't know if they still do it, but at least a decade ago, they still sent invites by post. So you had to send your postal address. So you had no idea really if you'd get in or not until you got a letter in the post. And I got about 25. Wow. No, so again, felt nearly bad, but... Nearly. <laughs> ne- oh yeah, no, not fully, let's be honest here. But yeah, so I sort of did that and I spent the five days of however long Fashion Week is running from show to show. And, and it's actually, the days are very, very full because you start the first shows about 9am and then the parties finish at kind of 3am. But yeah, so I did it and then, to yeah, cut a long story short, that weirdly worked for like five seasons. Wow. Um, yeah, so I just went, it just became a part of my life. I just went to Fashion Week, including one where I got upgraded to VIP press, <laughs> uh, where I no longer had to queue for the shows and I was given access to a side room. I could have a glass of champagne while waiting for my turn to go sit. <laughs> Did you have to start writing quite a lot about fashion though? Oh, I never wrote a single word about it. For five seasons? Yeah. Again, which is why wow. each season I was like, surely someone's <laughs> noticed now. Surely the jig is up. And and it never was. And no, no, until again, after about five or six seasons, I got an email, a slightly curt email saying, could we have... Re- oh yeah, sorry, because I forgot. I'd even like stopped the website in that time. So I didn't even have a website anymore. <laughs> and yeah, and eventually they said, could we, could we get your readership figures? And I thought, well, I don't have any because I don't have any readers. So, you know, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, it's been fun. <laughs> Goodbye. Farewell. It's over. <laughs> Coming up, as Marie grew up, so did the internet. Why has it changed so much? That's after a quick message from a colleague. I'm Danny Fortz, and the West Coast correspondent for the Sunday Times, based out here in Silicon Valley, where every week we write about what big tech is up to, as well as introducing you to the next generation of bright-eyed founders working on everything from flying cars to lab-grown chicken, and everything in between. And we can only do that thanks to you, the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
in your book, you say that the internet is becoming more flat. What, what do you mean by that? So what I mean by that is that so we've all we've all effectively been on the same platforms for a very long time now. I, I've had people, so I've now deleted all my old tweets, but I used to get people pulling up stuff I tweeted years before and saying, oh my God, what happened to you, Marie? What happened? Because it's all there and you can actually pull it up with a search function incredibly quickly. It, it does, it flattens, I think, time completely. So that works for the future as well. And that's something I mentioned briefly in the book, but I behave online now in a way that I'm consciously trying not to embarrass future Marie, which is a very weird way to live your life because I've been caught up, pulled up by so many things I did and said and whatever else online 5, 10, 15 years ago that this is now a part of my brain. So I feel like I have to take into account every potential future Marie whenever I do something, which kind of is no way to live, really. No. Um, even now, I think the problem is, you know, of course, you know, I've been a political journalist for what, for seven years now. So, it's, you know, it's fair to say that it, it is my job. <laughs> you know, it is, you know, no one can take that away from me. But, but you know, I'm also someone who really likes tattoos. You know, I'm heavily tattooed and I do lots of weird sports, including like pole dancing and trapeze and general circus stuff. And, 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 and like, I, I like to think that actually... I have some level of depth, but I'm never quite sure how much of it I can share online. You know, I can't stop myself from making the occasional joke in incredibly poor taste on the internet. And then I'm like, oh God, about have the cabinet follows me. <laughs> Why did I do that? So, so you yeah, know, that, that is still something I struggle with a bit. But then there's also a bit of me that's like, no, but hang on, this was my house. You all came mm. here. I was here first on yeah. the internet. You all decided to join and that's nice. But, you know, my house, my rules. You've um, ruined it for me. <laughs> but, no, exactly. So I think I, I have been fighting back a bit. Again, I mean, I was tweeting about tattoo artists just the other day. Um, but yeah, so I, I'm now actually a bit more conscious of that. And I'm like, no, hang on. That was part of the fun of the internet is that you could just be quite weird. And that was fine. And that was nice. So, so yeah, I think I we, we'd all have a nicer time, I think. On the internet, if we again allowed ourselves just to have that depth, even if it means that we do misstep occasionally. So I think there's that. And I think the flattening also happens. So this is actually a thread I did on Twitter that went very viral in the first lockdown. So I think there's been a theory, especially in politics in the US and in Britain and elsewhere for quite a few years now of saying, actually, the problem with the internet is that we're all stuck in our bubbles. We're all stuck in bubbles with people who sound like us and talk mm. like us and agree with us and have the same interests and same opinions, etc. And that's very bad for democracy. And my argument was actually completely the opposite, saying, actually, no, guys, that you've got this the entirely, entirely the wrong way around. The problem is that we're all together all the time. And that's not how, you know, that, that's not how we're built. Again, taking Twitter, but even Facebook, I think Facebook was the kind of beginning of that because, you know, Facebook, suddenly you were friends there with your university friends, your childhood friends, your family potentially your friends from work, yeah. every person you've ever dated and the breakup wasn't bad. So you're staying friends. And you suddenly had to, whenever you posted a status, you had to post something that would hopefully be funny and or entertaining and or more importantly, not problematic to any of those people in your life. And obviously, you know, I think Twitter and Instagram, etc. are even worse because it can also be any stranger who stumbles upon that. Mm. And the problem is, again, that that's not how we're built at all as people. And that's not it's not to say I think we're inherently hypocritical or two-faced or whatever. It's just that I think we're ultimately social beings. And as social beings, we will always slightly adapt ourselves to who we're talking to. And if we can't do this, I think that that does something to our brains, which I'm not, I'm not convinced is good. But then it's also, it just feels quite suffocating. 
What really rankles is that the internet for so long was just incredibly freeing. And I think, again, especially for those of us who were just not very good at real life when we were growing up. So, you know, it was this incredibly freeing place. And it now feels, I think, just incredibly claustrophobic. The internet used to be the place you escape to, and it's now the place we're trying to escape from. Is it just that we're on the internet too much now? Is that the problem? Is that what's gone wrong? So, yes, and I think weirdly, so I was having an adjacent chat with a friend quite recently. We're talking about dating apps, so that there's obviously a chapter in the book that is only a very thinly disguised rant at how much I hate dating apps. So, and, and we were talking, yeah, busy with uh, friends, so people in their kind of early, mid-30s who are single and what how that's going for them, effectively. And yeah, my friend was saying the problem is that if you're someone who doesn't like dating apps... It's not just that it's quite hard to meet people because, of course, if you're like 33, you're not going clubbing every weekend anymore because you're not 23 anymore. But it's also that people who are on the apps now treat dating purely or nearly purely as something that you do on the apps. And you you don't really do the stuff that people used to do of just trying to meet people in real life and kind of paying more attention to maybe friends of friends or making an effort in person to talk to acquaintances, etc. Because now that's just become the thing they do online. And that did kind of strike me as symptomatic of one of the ways in which us being too online is kind of ruining Mm. real life as well. We just become incapable of separating our digital and real selves. I think we have and that saddens me because again I, I did really like the idea that we could have the best of both worlds by doing both and that Kind of makes me think as well, and that's a quote in the book by uh, Tea, who's actually one of the former sex bloggers I used to read with, who's also a fashion blogger, incredibly fun. She's a novelist as well now. And she was saying, actually, the big difference between our generation of bloggers and the people who kind of do similar-ish stuff now on TikTok, on Instagram, etc., is that we'd go out into the world without phones or without smartphones, without anything, and we'd do lots of stupid, fun things Then we'd come back home and we'd talk about it, we'd talk about our lives. Whereas she was like, it does feel a lot with the influencer crowd, for example, is that they're doing stuff for the internet and that there's no longer that kind of separation or that yearning to do things for their own sake in real life, which I thought was quite an astute point, but also it made me very sad. That's a bit of the book I fiddled with quite a lot. The bit about influencers and people who are probably quite similar than me in that they were born and immediately wanted to get on the computer. And the ones who clearly just really want to make a lot of money from the internet as quickly as possible by doing whatever they can do, so be that fashion-y stuff, whatever, video games, etc. And that's, so the original chapter for that was incredibly scathing. I was just very, very mean about those kids. (laughs) (laughs) So I had to go back several times and tone it down. Because I I sort of took that as a betrayal, I think, of the sort of ethos of the internet, of Mm. of my internet. We've talked about my times as a fashion journalist, a music journalist, uh, whatever else, everything I did in those years. And the one thing they have in common is that I did not make a penny from any of them. All I did was for fun. I just wanted to have a good time and be a bit silly and be in places I probably shouldn't be in. And and I think that's what the internet was in those years. There was a, a really strong sense of DIY, a really strong sense of like causing trouble, causing mischief and actually going around the big companies and the boring grown ups. That's all we wanted to do. Whereas now it does feel that the younger generation, if anything, is courting the mm. interests of big corporations, is courting mainstream interest. They're making themselves blander than they would otherwise be because they want to become the lowest common denominator. And that goes so strongly against everything I grew up with that, it, that again, yeah, there's a chapter I ended up having to tone down and then say, actually, also, 
I am probably being unfair because they grew up in a world that is entirely different from the one I grew up in. And with an internet that was different, who am I to say that if big money had been there as an option when I was growing up, that I would have decided to still go down the DIY route? And the bits that you miss, the fact that it's changed so much during your time on it, is there a, a, a sense that maybe some of that is just that we're all quite nostalgic for how things were better when we were younger? Do you think it's genuinely worse or is this also a sense of this used to be my place <laughs> it's not anymore it's in, hmm. oh, definitely, special. definitely a bit of that and I, I think I know this is just me being a bit territorial but I don't think it's just that though because again I'm not I think I, I do it and I realize it makes me sound like a sort of moody teenager but I just don't love that yeah big corporations yeah. are basically running the entire internet now and actually all the silly fun DIY counterculture not only isn't really there anymore, but also it's not really clear to me where it is because it's not clear to me that it's in real life either. So I, I worry that we're headed towards a more sort of like monolithic yeah. culture, which I don't like. And I don't think that's just me looking back at the past with rose tinted glasses. But hopefully, again, I really want to be wrong. Maybe there are some like 14 year olds at the moment doing very stupid and fun things, and I have no idea about them. And I really, really hope that's the case. I do really hope I'm wrong. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Mandreen Rana, and my guest, the political journalist and author, Marie Leconte. This episode was produced by Taryn Siegel. The executive producers today were Kate Ford and James Shield, and sound design was by John Scott. If you'd like to get in touch with us with any ideas for future episodes or any thoughts on what you've just heard then do drop us a line to stories of our times at thetimes.co.uk thanks for listening see you again soon planning for your next trip Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.